From Colorado to Virginia, Minnesota to California, this is American Radio Journal. On this edition, Joe Biden has issued his first veto, this in defense of ideologically driven investments in pension funds. Richard Morrison from the Competitive Enterprise Institute is here with details. The latest job approval numbers are in. Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth has the real story on why President Biden's approval ratings are plummeting. Eric Baim of Reason Magazine and Chris Edwards from the Cato Institute try to wrap their arms around how much money President Joe Biden's fiscal 2024 budget proposes to spend. And Jonathan Williams from the American Legislative Exchange Council discusses what states are doing about politically motivated investment plans on this week's American Radio Journal Commentary. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to American Radio Journal. President Joe Biden has vetoed congressional efforts to prevent the U.S. Department of Labor from applying so-called ESG standards to pension fund investments. Richard Morrison is a senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. He is here to unpack the issue. Richard, welcome to American Radio Journal. Richard, we're going to talk about the first veto by President Biden and its impact on the investment sector that impacts millions and millions of Americans. Before we do, though, this all centers around so-called ESG investing. Tell us what that is. For about the past 10, almost 15 years, this has been sort of a trend in the, the world of finance and in the world of political activism. So ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. And if your company is interested in that concept, you would say that we are ESG compliant or ESG aligned or something like that, or you have an ESG guided investment strategy. So it just means that in addition to trying to be profitable, what any other company does, trying to make goods and sell services that you're going to make a profit on, you also have other sort of subsidiary goals, which is like help helping the environment or supporting fair trade or supporting labor unions or any number of uh, other sort of political and social goals. The environmental ones are probably the most prominent, and, and among those, probably climate change is the one that gets talked about the most in terms of ESG you know, investing and, and strategy. Of course, if I'm investing my money either for retirement or just want to try to maximize my rate of return or there's a pension system investing money on my behalf, wouldn't bringing in the largest return, the greatest return, be more in my interest, in my self-interest than this so-called ESG? Well, most people would probably say yes. Some of the advocates of ESG would say that, well, this is just another way of making smart investment decisions or making smart risk decisions. And they would say, well, if you if you think about climate change, maybe that'll that'll change the investment returns you'll get in the future. Maybe business development will be different because of climate change versus if there was no climate change. So this is just another way to think about profit. But ultimately, you don't need a special excuse to do that, right? Because investment managers take into consideration all sorts of things. And Future climate change might be one of them. All these other ESG topics would fall under that headline as well. The only reason you would need to make a distinction is if you wanted to invest to promote those social goals and it wasn't profitable. And so that's why there's the debate over this rule that we're going to be talking about and uh, a lot of other policy. The ESG advocates will like to say, well, like I, I would like to say, sort of describe it as selling you a free lunch, saying you can have both. You can both maximize profits and have all these benefits. But ultimately, there comes a time to choose one or the other, which you're actually actually going to maximize. 
Speaking of the rule, the U.S. Department of Labor issued a rule relative to ESG investing. What is it the Labor Department has dictated should occur? Well, the Labor Department has the responsibility to oversee private pension funds. So that's ones that are created by companies or by labor unions. So 50 years ago, we had a bunch of pension funds default on their obligations, some in private industry, some in the the Teamsters Union. And so in 1974, Congress passed a law that says the Department of Labor is now it's now their responsibility to oversee these pension funds to make sure they follow through on their promises to workers and retirees. So for, like I said, for, for almost 50 years, the Department of Labor has been doing that. The most recent rule was the appointees of President Biden decided to make it easier for someone who is a manager of a pension fund to put money into ESG-aligned investments rather than just investing for financial benefit of retirees. This was a a flip-flop from the previous administration. The Trump administration had uh, clarified the rules, sort of they they had a slight change of the rules of their own, saying, no, 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 you probably shouldn't, you you should stay away from from ESG investments, ones that are about environmental and social topics, and you should really, if if you're managing a pension fund, you should really invest just to maximize returns for retirees. And the Biden rule changed that previous Trump position and said, well, no, actually now it's okay for you to put your retirees' money in these these ESG funds. So Congress then took a look at this, Richard, and a majority in both houses decided that ESG investing was not an appropriate way for the Labor Department to move forward, and they therefore essentially nullified the rule. The president has now taken some significant executive action relative to that. What has he done? The resolution from Congress would have overturned Biden, the Biden administration's rule, and so perhaps not surprisingly, although from my perspective a little disappointingly, the president has issued a veto, and so he has vetoed what Congress did, which would overturn the rule, which of course leaves the rule in place. So Congress has the authority under the Congressional Review Act, that law goes back all the way to the 90s, to overturn rules, administrative rules that the executive branch puts forward. So it's been used several times, but relatively infrequently. This is the, the first one that would, would have been successful, as you pointed out, it was passed by bipartisan majorities in both both the House and the Senate. But President Biden has, in fact, put that veto pen down. So we're, we're going to be stick with the status quo, which is the, the sort of pro-ESG investing rule. You, of course, study all of this at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, Richard. So what is your view of this? What impact do you think this rule is going to have going forward on all of these pension funds that will be affected? Well, it depends uh, to a certain extent on how bold these pension fund managers are. In my experience, pension fund managers tend to be pretty even-keel type people, but it still opens up the door for, for quite a bit of potential mischief. So if ESG investing, again, to advance all these like environmental social goals is very much all the rage among the people in the finance world, so every conference you go to, every every issue of Harvard Business Review you read, the sort of the, the zeitgeist and theme is very much pro-ESG. So there's a lot of sort of peer pressure in a way for people who are finance managers to go along with this and say that, well, we're managing also for the environment and for all these other things. So there is the possibility that this sort of open door will cause some, at least some pension fund managers, to, to put money in ideologically motivated things with the sort of assumption that, uh, well, I'm sure it'll work out, right? You know, if, if the idea is that we're going to have a different political world because of climate change, maybe maybe Congress will pass new laws or regulations that'll sort of nudge finance companies more in this direction anyway. But I would be wary of, of investors, investment managers making that assumption that these 
ESG investments are going to pay off because of some future, more future politics. I think it would be wise for them to stick to the old tried and true, which is you have a long-term investment strategy, you have a diversified portfolio, and you just try and get the best results you can for your pension. We have been talking with Richard Morrison, who is a senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Richard, tell us a bit about CEI and where can folks go on the web to learn more? The Competitive Enterprise Institute has been around for uh, almost 40 years now. We're a think tank in Washington, D.C. We have a free market orientation. We generally believe in free markets and limited government. So we like to keep up on what the uh, both Congress and the executive branch is doing and try and uh, comment and influence that however we can to, to lighten the load on American workers and taxpayers. And if you want to uh, learn more about that, you can always look us up online at cei.org. Listen to our, uh, our podcast, uh, Free the Economy, and you can find that all the all the usual podcast places. Richard Morrison of the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Richard, thank you for taking time to be with us. Oh, thank you. Great to be here. We, of course, are joined every week by Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth. And very interesting week this week. Some new numbers out on President Joe Biden's popularity rating. Also, a lot of economic news. We're going to talk about all of that with Scott Parkinson. Scott, good to have you here. Always great to be with you, Loman. Thanks for having me back. Well, the White House has to be scrambling a bit this week, Scott. The latest job approval ratings for the president, pretty dismal. Well, Loman, that's right. I think that there's a lot of folks in the White House that are starting to have a little bit of fear on on what their president is doing. The new Associated Press poll that came out this week was uh, surveyed from March 16th through March 20th. And this is a national poll judging the president's approval rating, which is now at only 38 percent. This is the lowest that President Biden has been surveyed at, other than when he was at 36 percent in July of 2022. So I think there's a lot of folks that are like, well, Biden was just up at 45 percent. He's been hovering in the 40s. What's going on here? And one of the big indicators in the Associated Press's polling is Biden's handling of the economy. That's all the way down to 31%. And when you start to unpack how we got to where we're at, I think a lot of folks understand the policies coming out of the White House are really damaging. And they're having a real effect on the middle class. We know that inflation is is not transitory like they said it was going to be in 2021, right? We know that inflation right now is stubborn and persistent, and I've predicted on your show before that inflation is going to increase even more when we get into the summer seasons and there's a higher demand for, for gasoline and energy in the United States. We also have the big looming debt limit issue that's out there, right? We already hit the debt limit. Congress is is trying to negotiate with the Biden administration, who refuses to really come to the table with any sort of a posture to negotiate. They want Republicans basically to come up with their own plan and send it over to the Senate, where there would be a bipartisan negotiation between Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell. But the fact of the matter is, Joe Biden is almost taking a backseat because a lot of the economic dynamics right now are out of his control. And I think that that's also reflected in, in these approval ratings, because right now, only 76% of Democrats even approve of the job that Joe Biden is doing. And when you look at the approval from Democrats on the economy, that's all the way down to 63% from Democrats. And 
I, I honestly think that we're in a situation here where people are waking up. And there were there was a lot of partisanship, I think, that floated around in the midterm of 2022. We obviously did take back the House of Representatives, but now Republicans are able to have some ability to break through with messaging and alternative ideas that were basically swatted away by Democrat unified government the first couple of years of Biden's administration. Looking at these economic issues, Scott, you have the Fed, which this past week just raised interest rates again. They've been on a historic tear in interest rate increases. They may take a pause here. All of this to fight inflation. You've had major bank failures in the last couple of weeks. Job numbers, not too bad, but likely to go down. It would appear there's much more economic pain ahead, unfortunately. The president's at 38 percent. Is there any thought that it's going to go up at all? It's more likely just to go down further? I think this is almost rock bottom for Biden because there are a lot of people that are just so partisan in their approach to politics that it's like, I'm on Biden's team. I'm for him. I support him even when we're losing every single game. And, you know, I think at the end of the season, folks need to decide whether or not their quarterback needs to be replaced or if you need to fire the coach, if you need to fire the general manager, if ownership needs to sell the team. The way that you you sort of look at the leadership role that Biden serves in government. And, uh, you know, honestly, I think he's a weak president. He's He's shown that he has no real solution to fixing the economy that's been devastated through three years of a coronavirus pandemic. They are empowering the Federal Reserve to try to combat inflation with interest rate increases. And then they're also encouraging banks to be investing in long-term treasury bonds. Well, that created a risk issue with a couple of those banks, with Signature Bank in New York and also Silicon Valley Bank out in California. And those banks don't exist anymore, right? They're gone. And so you have a real issue here where a lot of folks are investment firms are pulling cash out. Uh, They're actually starting to buy Bitcoin again. You've seen Bitcoin surge over the last couple of weeks. It's almost, I think, at 28,000 this week. And those are, I think, indicators of skepticism in America with how strong the economy is and and the recovery that we're enduring. And so, you know, when you look and you unpack everything that Joe Biden has done, for the first two and a half years of his presidency, I guess we're not quite at two and a half years, it's going to be a top issue in 2024 because the middle class is taking this on the chin. And we need to ensure that we have a movement to save the middle class. I hope that Republican candidates all throughout the country join me in advocating for that. We have been talking with Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth. And Scott, Tell us a little bit about the club. Also, we always like to have your website where folks can go to learn more. The website is clubforgrowth.org. People can actually sign up and become a member for free. Club for Growth is the premier economic freedom organization. We're, we're believing in capitalism. We believe in economic liberty and opportunity. And if anybody wants to, to follow us on Twitter, also, we're at Club for Growth with the number four. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Scott, thank you again for being here. Thank you. President Joe Biden has proposed his fiscal 2024 budget, and the level of spending is off the charts. Eric Baim of Reason Magazine and Chris Edwards from the Cato Institute report. If the size of the federal government had grown only as fast as the economy has grown since the Clinton years, then 
Well, we'd be running a budget surplus today. Instead, quite the opposite, multi-trillion dollar deficits from here as far out as the eye can see, and President Joe Biden's new budget is only going to make that situation worse. Hi folks, I'm Eric Bain with Reason Magazine. Thanks for joining us on this edition of American Radio Journal. My guest today is Chris Edwards. He is the KILT Chair of Fiscal Policy at the Cato Institute, and he's been spending the last few weeks just digging through the details of Biden's budget. He's here to walk us through some of of this. Uh, Chris, thanks for taking some time with us today. Thanks for having me, Eric. Let's start here. There's obviously so many uh, things we could talk about in this budget. We're not going to have time to get to all of it. Let's talk about, I think, the most interesting thing is is the baseline level of spending, what the government, what, what President Joe Biden is proposing to spend in this budget. It's instructive to take that and to go back to 2019, the last pre-COVID budget, just wipe out the years of the pandemic because obviously things went bonkers in there. But if you just look at 2019 versus this year, what do we see? That's right. 2023 spending, spending this year is sort of back to normal in that the, the most of the COVID money spent was temporary, the five or so trillion dollars. It's passed now, but we're spending in 2023 40% more than we spent in 2019. So, and that seems, and, and we're going up from here. President Biden's proposing 8% increase on top of that for next year. So, what is all this new spending? Interestingly, it's not the two biggest federal programs, Social Security or Medicare, and it's not really defense, even though we're spending, we spend 30 or 40 billion on Ukraine. It's actually a bunch of sort of pretty big entitlement programs like food stamps and EITC and Medicaid, that spending has soared. And also interest on the federal government debt has soared as interest rates have risen. So there's a general broad expansion in the federal government that has occurred in recent years since 2019 that unfortunately is now baked into the kind of the federal uh, budget baseline. Yeah, you said we've gone up 40% since 2019. I think it's also interesting, and you did this in a post recently at Cato.org. You went back and you looked at the last time the budget was balanced. Some of us barely even remember that. I was, a, I think I was in grade school when this happened in the late 90s. 2000, I think, was actually the last year we had a balanced budget, uh, the Clinton administration back then. But you, you looked at that versus where we are now, and there's some instructive things in that comparison as well, even though it's, it's obviously been a while. That's right. The last time we balanced the budget was the last four years of the uh, Clinton tenure. The budget was balanced. Of course, he was working with a Republican Congress. So in, in 2000, uh, under Clinton, federal spending was 17.7% of GDP. Today, it's 24.2% of GDP. So we the government has, has grabbed a, I think it's a 48% greater share of the overall U.S. economic pie, which is really unfortunate. If we had just held spending to the Clinton level, the budget today would be balanced. But instead, we've got a $1.6 trillion deficit. So all we need to do is uh, get back to the discipline of the Clinton years, and most of these debt problems would be solved. Another way to look at this is that since 2000, if we had just held spending to GDP growth of 4.2%, our budget would be balanced today. But instead, 
spending has risen closer to 6%, and that's why we're in such a giant budget mess. We're talking with Chris Edwards. He's the chair of fiscal studies for the Cato Institute, and uh, he's been crunching all the numbers in this Biden budget. Um, I guess, Chris, let's finish on this because you were talking a lot about the, the Clinton years here, and it has me thinking, like, okay, you had a moderate Democratic president. You have a, uh, and a, and a Republican majority in Congress. You've got maybe in some very broad strokes, a a sort of similar dynamic there uh, right now. Republicans have changed a lot, too. I mean, there's just sort of a lack of of fiscal responsibility or fiscal restraint uh, on that side of the aisle these days, too. No, no, that's right. Unfortunately, we've had all the presidents since Clinton have been big spenders, both Republicans and Democrats. And there's very few leaders in Congress who are even the slightest bit interested about rising debt and deficits. If you go back to the the 80s and 90s, there was lots of Democrats and Republicans. They were putting together deficit reduction plans and debt reduction plans and spending restraint. We accomplished things like welfare reform in 1996 that actually cut welfare spending and got people out into more people out into the workforce. That was a bipartisan reform. Unfortunately, both parties seem to spend most of their time on uh, focusing on increasing spending these days, defense spending, non-defense spending, food stamp spending, for refundable tax credit spending, Medicare spending. It's really endless. So we lack leadership today. But the other, the other issue is that because the interest rates have been low for so long up until recently, the government's just been able to borrow uh, like crazy with, with no short-term political pain. Hopefully, the inflation episode of recent years is a warning to politicians that this spending has a cost. There are going to be economic consequences to all this spending and deficit. And I think inflation is just it's hopefully it'll start waking some of them up to do something about the budget mess we're in. Yeah, because all of that uh, debt, of course, costs something. You have to pay interest on that debt every year, and that interest goes up when interest rates go up, just like it does for all the rest of us. And uh, that means a larger share of the budget has to go towards that as well. That starts to crowd at everything else they want to spend money on. So, uh, yeah, some real difficult decisions ahead for Congress, no doubt about that. We're glad that we've got people like you, Chris, to walk us through all this. Uh, Thanks for taking some time with us today. Thanks a lot, Eric. And again, that's Chris Edwards. He is the uh, chair of fiscal studies at the Cato Institute. You can check out his work online at Cato.org, including a number of uh, really interesting blog posts over the last few weeks as he's been crunching all the numbers there on the Biden budget. Again, find that at Cato.org. Check out everything we're working on at Reason.com. And for Reason Magazine, I'm Eric Bame. Catch me right back here next week on another edition of American Radio Journal. Politically motivated investment plans are costing both private and public pension funds billions in lost income. Jonathan Williams talks about what can be done to stop it on this American Radio Journal commentary. Just this week, President Joe Biden issued his very first veto of his administration, which rejected a bipartisan resolution from Congress that would have protected pensions from politicized investment strategies like the ESG or environmental, social and governance ideas that we've been hearing far too much about in recent years. The effort from Congress was a smart effort to rebuke a new rule from the Biden Department of Labor that allows money managers to use ESG investing as a default plan option. ESG has taken the financial industry by storm in recent years and has become a serious threat to financial health of both private and public retirement plans. Some investment firms and state pension systems have taken to using ESG investing strategies with government pension plans, 
and have even used their control of proxy votes to influence the company's decisions in ways that go against financial interests of the states. Unfortunately, the cost of these strategies is ultimately borne by the plan beneficiaries, the retirees, and ultimately all of us as taxpayers. As shown in the ALEC report, Unaccountable and Unaffordable, that I helped put together, the state pension plans are shockingly $8.2 trillion in the red. That's right. That's over $25,000 for every man, woman, and child in the United States. Any politically-based investing is going to make that problem much worse. President Biden and his allies claim that not using ESG investment strategies would, quote, put at risk retirement savings of individuals across the country, unquote. Talk about getting it backwards. As new research from my friend Andy Puzder and Mike Edelson show, ESG investing yields lower returns than investing without political constraints. Our Alex Center for State Fiscal Reform Research has also highlighted longstanding work showing that broad-based investing that is politically agnostic produces the best financial gains over even a 50-year period. Outside of policy and academia, examples from states like California also confirm that politically-based investing is alarmingly detrimental to public sector workers and retirees. Back in 2001, California's largest pension system, CalPERS, decided to sell off or divest from all tobacco-related stocks. Fast forward to numbers produced 16 years after that happened, and tobacco stock divestment has cost California pensioners a whopping $3.5 billion, according to estimates cited by the Wall Street Journal. Public retirement savings are severely underfunded as it is, and it's clear that ESG or other politically-based investing would only serve to make them more underfunded at the expense of beneficiaries and taxpayers. So what can be done about this politically motivated investing? Well, ALEC model policy that was developed last year called the State Government Employee Retirement Protection Act outlines some key strategies to combating the use of politically motivated investing in pension plans at the state level, such as the sole interest rule in the model policy that says that fiduciaries are legally obligated to make investments in the sole interest of plan participants and their beneficiaries for the exclusive purpose of providing financial benefits over time. Fiduciaries should not be able to invest in their own pet projects unless somehow they can show that that investment is in the sole interest of the participant and their beneficiaries. In this investment climate, it's difficult enough for the very best money managers out there to make money when they're focusing on making money, let alone when they don't focus on getting the best financial return. Several states are working to implement these ideas already based on ALEC model policy. Montana may be the very first to cross the finish line in a number of days, where Governor Greg Gianforte is expected to sign the model policy into law. The Arizona Senate, the Georgia Senate, and the Oklahoma House of Representatives have each passed their own bills, including the sole interest rule based on ALEC model policy. The efforts in Georgia and in Oklahoma were passed unanimously, proving that keeping politics out of pensions is a bipartisan, common-sense issue. Once again, states are leading the way on an essential issue like this one. While President Joe Biden's veto is unsurprising, 
given the huge special interest groups who lobby every day for politically based investing, the bipartisan free market efforts in the states to keep politics out of pension should give us hope that state lawmakers across the country will continue to lead the way to protect the funding of their pension systems, ultimately protecting the workers, the retirees, and American taxpayers in every single state across the country. For more information, visit alec.org. For American Radio Journal, I'm Jonathan Williams. Thanks for listening. American Radio Journal is heard on public affairs-minded radio stations all across the country, including WBBG-FM and WNCD-FM in Youngstown, Ohio, along with WBFG-AM and WZLT-FM in Lexington, Tennessee. American Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, which underwrite the costs of this program. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. Learn more about American Radio Journal and hear expanded versions of some interviews aired on this program please visit our website, AmericanRadioJournal.com. I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal, lighting the brush fires of freedom. Freedom.